I'm not sure how many foundational texts there are in the Bible, but this morning's is surely one of them. It comes from the prophet Isaiah, what is known as Second Isaiah, the beginning of the good news to the exiles who had been completely destroyed by the Babylonian armies and sent to live in Babylon for at least two generations. This morning's text from the first verse through the 11th is good news not only to them but also to us. Hear the word of the Lord. Comfort, O comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that she has served her term, that her penalty is paid, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries out, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And then the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all people shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All people are grass. Their constancy is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good tidings. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good tidings. Lift it up and do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. See, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. His reward is with him and his recompense before him. And he will feed his flock like a shepherd. And he will gather the lambs in his arms and carry them in his bosom and gently lead the mother sheep. This is the word of the Lord. When Dorothy clicks her heels with her ruby slippers and chants, there's no place like home. We, like her, are transported back to a place, a metaphorical place at least, or rather maybe a time when we felt that we were most at home in the world. Since then, we have been pilgrims, sojourners on the yellow brick road of life, trying to find our way back. Especially, I think, at this time of year, is that apparent? The reality is there's no place like home because there's no place like home. There is no place. We can't get back there at all. 
As Thomas Wolfe wrote 60 years ago, you can't go home again. He said, you can't go back home to your family, back home to your childhood, back home to a young man's dreams of glory and fame, back home to places in the country, back home to the old forms and systems of things which once seemed everlasting, but which are changing all the time, back home to the escapes of time and memory. There is no place left like that, you see, to get back to. At Christmas time, especially, we become aware of this. It's not so much about home and homecoming, although that seems to be the central theme, but really, deep down in us, I think it's more about how the season evokes in us a feeling of homesickness. I still pine for that mystical Christmas time in second grade. I remember riding with my siblings on Christmas Eve afternoon in my parents' giant Plymouth station wagon over to see the Lassiters, friends of theirs. They had no children, and so we knew we were in for an hour and a half of fruitcake boredom. I was dressed up in coat and clip-on red tie. I was listening to green sleeves on the radio. It still evokes in me that moment in time. It was cold and gray outside. After the Lassiters, we would move quickly over to the Moravian Church for their candlelight service at the little church in the lane in Charlotte, North Carolina, and then we would hightail it back home where my mother miraculously would bring forth a Christmas dinner, which we would always have on Christmas Eve, and then we would clean the dishes and then open our presents from each of us, the family presents, so as not to conflict with Santa's gifts on Christmas morning. And come those early morning hours when I could not sleep and I would find myself sitting on the top step of the stairs, listening to every bump downstairs knowing that Santa was placing out all the gifts. I was full of mystery and enchantment, and I wish, like heck, I could get back there. That next morning when I was finally able to rouse my parents at the coming of the dawn and ran down into the living room to find my place where Santa had come, I found there the greatest gift a young second-grade boy could ever find, a Sherman tank this big that was remote-controlled, not wireless back then, but with a wire, and I knew that I had to be the most blessed boy in the world. That Christmas for me, as I said, was enchanting, and it, in my memory, it, it is illumined like no other. The fact is that the older we get, the farther from that sense of home we end up, especially when life takes its normal tolls and disrupts our families and invades our securities and wipes away the mysteries with all of the rationalities that we are fed. Inevitably, those times of being at home are swept away by the tides of history. Home, it turns out, in fact, is less about a place and more about a time or 
about those relationships that connect us. And while this makes us all homesick in certain seasons, I think it is also, and get this, it is also the very source of our greatest hope and joy. Why? Because if home is less about a place and more about a time and about our relationships, then wherever we are along the road away from home can in fact still be a homecoming. And especially if it is God's time and God's way and God's relationship that we choose to travel by, then home is wherever we are, or at least the promise of it is always before us. You see, what we're most homesick for is God. To get back home with God to that time when we were with God fully, completely, before we were exiles on this planet Earth. Since then, we have been searching. A young four-year-old boy is overheard by his mother talking to his two-year-old brother about God, and his mother then asks the four-year-old, what were you talking about? And he says, we were talking about God and heaven I wanted him to tell me about that before he forgets. While our homesickness is mostly existential, that is to say, a deep sense of feeling and awareness, in Israel's day, it was an actual historical catastrophe that caused their deep pining. It was not only existential, but physical, historical, spiritual. In this morning's passage from Isaiah, The prophet proclaims words of comfort and joy to people who had lost all sense of home in any possible way when the Babylonians swept through their country in 587 and burned it all to the ground. From then on, they were exiles in a foreign land where they lived for two generations. Then, then Isaiah Stands up. Knowing the will of God, Isaiah proclaims that their time in exile has come to an end, that out of that complete sense of abandonment and loss that they had, Isaiah was proclaiming hope and comfort. Comfort, oh comfort, my people, he says. Your time of exile has come to an end. Now you will be led back. It would not be home as they knew it. Everything had changed, yet nothing had changed. It would be a new home because God was with them and they were with God. Knowing the will of God, Isaiah proclaims that their time in exile has come to an end. That out of that complete sense of abandonment and loss that they had, Isaiah was proclaiming hope and comfort. Comfort, oh comfort, my people, he says. Your time of exile has come to an end. Now you will be led back. It would not be home as they knew it. Everything had changed, yet nothing had changed. It would be a new home because God was with them and they were with God. 
Isaiah reminds us that while that was a rough journey that got them so far from home, full of dark and dangerous valleys and extremely high mountains to climb, that God will prepare for us a new way in the desert highway to get us back home. Every valley will be lifted up. Every mountain will be made low. Every rough place will be smoothed out. And there will be a way back because God will make it so. The mouth of the Lord has spoken, Isaiah says, and that settles it. Isaiah is clear that unlike most of us, when God gives God's word, it is fact. God gives God's word that he will bring us home again, no matter how far away from home we have wandered. No matter how much water has gone under the dam, God will bring us back home. History is like the grass, Isaiah says. It withers like the flower, it fades. Like us, it withers and fades. But the word of the Lord, Isaiah says, will stand forever. And that word is this, God will bring us home. Anita and I were watching 60 Minutes last week about the Syrian refugees making their way across the desert, about a million of them. And we were brought to tears by the images of the mothers carrying their children through the desert. How many miles had they traveled? And the soldiers running out into the wilderness, even across enemy lines, to grab hold of the children and to bring them back. And the fathers, what there were left of them, struggling with whatever provisions they had. The show was about the World Food Program, a United Nations food program, uh, underwritten much by the United States, put into effect by uh, President Eisenhower, which I commend to you after doing research, is a very, very good program and deserves uh, uh, our support. But the show really spoke about the deep and painful reality of what it means to be an exile and refugee and about the consequences of war and violence, as well as the opportunities that we have to help alleviate some of their pain and suffering. Another dark spot in our history is as well another possibility to let God's light shine through us. I was looking at the six panels of our history downstairs in Bittinger Hall that we put together for our 100th anniversary in 2010 the other day. And in the first, starting in 1910, we soon moved to World War I, then Prohibition, then the Depression, the rise of Nazism, World War II, Korean War, nuclear issues, the Cold War, the assassinations. We move to the sixth panel. There's 9-11, there's Hurricane Katrina, there's the tsunami catastrophe. You look at some of the smaller print at the bottom of our panel, you see issues affecting Jacksonville and affecting Riverside Church. There are pictures of pastors. There's Tom R.'s picture up there. There's Michelle Thomas Bush's picture up there, and there's my picture up there. 
that one panel reflecting back 15 years or so, you get a, a large sweep of a very small part of history as it relates to Riverside Church. And what you get is you see the whole sweep of this scant hundred years is how true Isaiah's words are. The grass withers and the flower fades. And in the wisdom of our anniversary committee, on the last panel, the sixth panel, the today panel up to 2010, are the words on the top that put it all in perspective. The word of our Lord will stand forever. I was looking at the six panels of our history downstairs in Bittinger Hall that we put together for our 100th anniversary in 2010 the other day. And in the first, starting in 1910, we soon moved to World War I, then Prohibition, then the Depression, the rise of Nazism, World War II, Korean War, nuclear issues, the Cold War, the assassinations. We moved to the sixth panel. There's 9-11, there's Hurricane Katrina, there's the tsunami catastrophe. You look at some of the smaller print at the bottom of our panel, you see issues affecting Jacksonville and affecting Riverside Church. There are pictures of pastors. There's Tom R.'s picture up there. There's Michelle Thomas Bush's picture up there, and there's my picture up there. And that one panel reflecting back 15 years or so, you get a, a large sweep of a very small part of history as it relates to Riverside Church. And what you get is you see the whole sweep of this scant hundred years is how true Isaiah's words are. The grass withers and the flower fades. And in the wisdom of our anniversary committee, on the last panel, the sixth panel, the today panel up to 2010, are the words on the top that put it all in perspective. The word of our Lord will stand forever. That's what we have to stand on. This is our hope. God's world is God's world because God is in it. And at the end of history, the one thing we can stand on is that we are still gods. This leads us to the second claim of the prophet Isaiah, and that is that the word of God that will stand forever can be trusted because when God speaks, God acts. God spoke the world into existence at creation when God said, let there be and there was and God's word, we claim as Christians, became flesh in Jesus Christ. That is incarnate in our midst, in this word with us. There is no separation between what God says and what God does. If stupid is as stupid does, according to Forrest Gump, then love is as love does. Not only will God bring us back home, but God will also lead us there himself, but with a gentle, kind, loving shepherd who, like a mother, will gather us in her arms and carry us in her bosom. 
God does what God says. And we claim that in Christ, God came to show us the way home. In Christ, God came to walk with us on the journey back. In Christ, God came to gather us in his bosom. And when the time is right for each of us, God will again carry us finally to our eternal home. Recently, I've been told at least six times in the last week about this remarkable woman named Mary C. Neal, who was recently a speaker at St. John's Cathedral. She has written a book called Heaven To Heaven and Back, an orthopedic surgeon who went kayaking on a river in Chile who was turned over upside down and literally, well, I guess almost literally, drowned. She had her legs broken there. She, in way of many, had an out-of-body, after-death experience, and the book is about that. She is a very rational physician who speaks rationally, not sentimentally, but rationally. And as she speaks and writes, you get a sense that the incredible moment for her of homecoming came when in her experience of death, she left her body, as many after-death experiences are, are like, and she was embraced by a horde of spirit uh, friends, uh, the great cloud of witnesses, and, and they walked with her on the way toward this enormous light. And she looked back, and of course, hearing her husband and, and children wailing for her to come back, uh, she was then told by one of the witnesses, uh, it turned out to be Christ, she knew later, uh, that it was not her time. And as she tells this story, what she tells is not just about this moment when she is brought home again by the crowd of, cloud of, uh, of witnesses and Christ, but that she in her bringing back to earth when she's not at home experiences a whole new release and freedom about what life is all about. Because you see, once you know that your home is not of this world, but it is instead with God, and that God walks with us in this world, but in a way that we never fully, fully comprehend it, then you are free to live with a complete love and complete devotion because there is no more fear. And this is the promise, you see, that Isaiah gives to each of us. It is the word that we have to stand on. Comfort, comfort to you, O God's people. He will come and bring us home. And then we, with T.S. Eliot in the four quartets, can agree that with the dawning of this love and the voice of this calling, we shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place again for the first time. From the moment of our birth to the moment of our death, this is what life is about.